Udhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasam. Somebody sent in a question which asked how possible and relevant are metta and mudita in times when personal survival is threatened. How possible and relevant are metta and mudita in times when personal survival is threatened. First off, I should say that I am not aware of the nature of threat that the questioner is feeling challenged by. Uh, Maybe it's a personal medical prognosis. Uh, Maybe it's the collective crisis that humanity finds itself in the midst of right now. Just to say up front that I I hope that I don't say anything that uh, sounds insensitive or disrespectful to the struggle that the question is having. Metta and Karuna and Mudita and Upeka, as most of us would know, generally referred to as the, the four Brahmaviharas or divine abidings and the teachings that uh, in Theravadan Buddhism in particular, uh, spoken about and, and cultivation is encouraged. And when somebody asks how possible and relevant any of these might be, the Buddha didn't teach anything that's not relevant. Uh, whether it's possible or not depends on other factors. So, metta, karuna, mudita, upekā, uh, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, all four of the divine abidings are always relevant. And they can have the potential to bring great benefit to anybody who's cultivating them, at least in principle. And again, a lot of what I say is speaking in terms of principle. As I've often mentioned before, when I I think about my teachers, I consider myself very much a beginner. However, we can still look at these things in terms of the principle involved and what the Buddha had to say about it. And uh, In theory, anyway, you can be an ICU and still be cultivating metta and mudita, loving kindness and empathetic joy. I'm assuming that the questioner sees there's a place for compassion and equanimity and struggling with loving kindness and empathetic joy because there's so much pain around. If we really understand what the Buddha was talking about, that these divine abidings, these qualities of heart, these qualities of mind are to be cultivated, they're not just ideals to be clung to. Sometimes we can read spiritual teachings and have the idea that all I should be loving, I should be compassionate and I should feel empathetic joy and I should feel equanimity. And that's not the way the Buddha wanted us to pick these up. 
rather to use the techniques, to use the methods to give ourselves access to these qualities of heart, these qualities of mind, yeah. like loving kindness. May I be well. May all beings be well. That's always a relevant thought to think, feeling, to have, to imbue the heart with that well-wishing. It's always relevant because it nourishes the heart and helps bring calm and contentment to the heart and mind, clarity, and when it's expressed outwardly, then it contributes well-being and concord and harmony to the world that we live in. So loving-kindness is always relevant. Whether or not it's possible, that depends on whether we've prepared ourselves or not. So I perfectly well understand that somebody in ICU who hasn't prepared themselves with this particular kind of competence, intentionally generating well-wishing, may I be well, may all beings be well, may find the pain and the disagreeable circumstance they find themselves in just too much. And so it's very likely that in the midst of a lot of pain, if the preparation hasn't been put in, then it's not going to really work very well. And the same with, with mudita taking delight in the well-being of others, finding joy and seeing other people being successful. If we've got a lot of pain, if there's a, a dominant perception is one of suffering, then if we haven't prepared ourselves already with this particular training, then it, it's probably not going to be a very successful time to be starting it. So then what do we do in that situation? Well, it's not like there's anything wrong with the teachings. We just see, well, what we can do, we can focus on compassion and equanimity. Ideally, in principle, all four need to be cultivated. However, in terms of practice, what matters is what works. Again, if we're overly idealistic, then we can think, oh, I'm failing or the teaching's failing because it's not working. Well, it's maybe because we're not picking up the right practice in the right way at the right time. There is a, a right time for each of these practices and there's a right way to pick them up. And ideals, to, to quote Ajahn Sumato, is that it's like, it's like the stars if you're crossing the ocean in a boat and you look at the stars to get your bearings, to get the direction you go in. If you don't spend all your time looking at the stars, if you do, you can get yourself into big trouble. And maybe the boat's going to run aground or maybe you're running out of food or maybe all sorts of things happening. So we relate to the ideals, however not holding too tightly to the ideals. They, they help us get the right direction. And so likewise with all the Buddha's teachings, what is applicable right now? And so if we're in a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, and we're not, we haven't already developed the competence of generating intentional well-being. May I be well. May all beings be well. It can be very difficult. Most people have got a, a backlog of self-disparagement and a lot of people have got a backlog of aversion for others and to give rise to that thought, may I be well. It's very difficult. So understanding that the Buddha gave all these teachings in a, a graduated 
way. There's a, there's a place to start, and the place to start is where we're at. Again, if we're overly idealistic, or if we're just habitually greedy, which is very normal and for most of us these days, and we feel very justified in being greedy. I mean, we want the best now. I want to get enlightened now. And I only just stop smoking dope. In fact, I haven't even stopped smoking dope. I'll start again after the retreat. I'll go on this retreat and see if I can get enlightened. That comes from a lack of humility, lack of modesty, a lack of understanding about how the way progresses. And the tried and tested approach is, is to listen to those who've walked the path before us and then pay attention to their advice. And so the, the advice the Buddha gave, and I often refer to this discourse on the greatest blessings, the Mahamanga Sutta, uh, it starts off with really meeting yourself where you're at. You know? If you read through the Mahamangala Sutta, the Discourse on Great Blessings, you see at the very end, or the second to last verse, it says, Jitang Yasangna Kampati, this heart is unshakable, Asokang Virajang Kiamang, griefless, dustless, secure. And what is this heart that the Buddha is referring to? It's the heart that is penetrated with insight to the Four Noble Truths. And you say, Yeah, that's what I want. I'm going for that. I'm going to go on a retreat and understand the Four Noble Truths and realize the unshakable heart. Chittang Yasangna Kampati. The Buddha didn't start with that. They started with the first stanza, which is pay attention to the kind of company that you keep. In other words, don't associate with people that are going to drag you down. Panditana chasirana. Associate people who are going to lift you up. Pujaja pujanyanang. Honor that which is truly worthy of honor. And if we're serious about this practice, we've got to pay attention to the stages of training and not be overly idealistic and speculate and fantasize about how we could be, should be, might be. What's needed is to really pay attention to where we're at. What sort of company are we keeping? Are we actually spending time in the company of those who know more than we do, who are going to be honest with us, who are going to lift us up? Or are they still compromising integrity and being casual about life? And honoring that which is worthy of honor, have we ever really stopped to consider what do I honor in life most? What do I believe is really worthy of honoring? What do I bow down to? Well, for a lot of people, it's bowing down to things like reputation. Who likes me? Or health, working out in the gym and taking vitamins and supplements and keeping the time. All of these things, from a realistic perspective, are unreliable. They're not ultimately worthy of honoring, though. They're worthy of paying attention to. That which is worthy of honoring is that which is going to last. Our health is going to disappear. Our friends, we're going to be separated from all of them. Our reputation is, is, is unstable. So honoring that which is worthy of honor from the perspective of the wise elders is honoring true principles, honoring Dhamma. We think what is true, what is reliable, and, and, and bowing down to that, really giving ourselves to that which is true, 
that which is truly beneficial for oneself, truly beneficial for the world, starting every day. You know, if we're serious about awakening, if we're serious about training, if we're serious about meeting the suffering of our own life and the suffering of the world, then it's not a big ask to establish a practice of starting every day, bowing down out of respect, honouring that which is true, that which is truly worthy, like the potential for realising wisdom, selfless wisdom and selfless compassion, which is what is symbolised by the Buddha. When we bow down to the Buddha, that's what we're honouring, the potential that human beings have for realisation of selfless wisdom and selfless compassion, the wisdom that sees accurately in all situations, whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, that sees accurately and then is able to respond beautifully in a way that is truly beneficial. So starting every day and ending every day, honouring that which is worthy of honour and meeting ourselves again where we're at if we, if we are still fooled by the temptations of distraction, our habitual addictions, which of course we all develop in the early stages of life before we realize that some things are more important than others. We're just kind of getting by and in the process of coping with the chaos, we inevitably, most of us anyway, develop all sorts of addiction to distraction and, and those habits can be really obstructive. You know, like the stories we tell ourselves, like the stories we tell ourselves about how great we are, how amazing we are, how, how better than other people we are, or how hopeless we are, how pathetic we are, what a failure we are. Yeah. Not, this is, most of this is not accurate discernment. This is this heedless stories that we learn to tell ourselves because nobody points out, well, de de cultivating disciplined attention and, and wise reflection means that we can question all the stories that we've got going on in our head and discern for ourselves, is this reliable or not? Mm. And for many people, when they stop and start to look inwards, listen inwards, feel inwards, well, that's, a, that's quite a big deal for a lot of people. Again, very early on in life, a lot of people become chronically disconnected from feeling. They're so identified in the head, in their world of concepts and approximations. And if you hear these teachings and decide we're going to apply ourselves to these teachings and start to realize, well, I'm pretty obstructed in being able to read the feeling dimension. I've got ideas about life, about how I should be and shouldn't be and other people should be and shouldn't be. However, to actually feel what I feel accurately and really read it, you realize actually I'm, I can't read. A lot of people, they can't read their own hearts. They might be able to tell you that they're feeling upset. I feel really upset. And you say, well, what are you upset about? So I don't know, I just know I'm upset. Well. That's not enough, actually. If we really want to deal with this feeling of upset, well, if we don't want to deal with it, that means we're going to blame other people for it, or the world, or deny it. They're the two habits of indulgence and denial. If we really want to deal with it, that's the middle way. 
the alternative to the habits of indulging and denying. If we really want to meet this feeling of upsetness, we need to be able to read it. It's like, what is this upsetness, this unsettledness? Is it anger that I'm feeling? Is it sadness? Is it disappointment? Is it frustration? Is it anxiety? What is it? And if we don't have the ability to ask those questions of ourselves and read our own hearts, our own bodies, our own minds, then we are really limited. And so once again, not being overly idealistic in how we approach the, the teachings and the training and find the right aspect of the training to pick up and picking it up in the right way at the right time. And if that involves, for instance, you know, finding somebody to talk to, that's really important to have friends that we feel supported by. And the Buddha pointed out that the benefits of having good companions and how important it is to surround yourself with good companions and to engage in the kind of conversation that lifts you up, that paying attention to the company that we keep, we don't have to apologize for this. You say, well, actually, I don't want to spend time with those people. If you're fully awakened, if you've done your work, well, then you can go anywhere, anytime with anybody and remain unshakable, chitang yasang na kampati, and so be it. However, for the rest of us who are not in that state, we do need to be realistic, not idealistic, and pay attention to the kind of company that we keep, surround ourselves with spiritual friends with whom we feel an affinity, share a goal of what really matters in life. And it could also mean finding professional help for some people. Their addictions to distractions are so deep and so difficult to access that they could well need therapy. And a few decades ago, Buddhists and psychotherapists used to argue with each other and feel threatened by each other. And I think these days things have improved a lot and psychotherapists and Buddhists, meditators, realize that they can benefit from each other. Psychotherapy is a set of skills that helps to correct the misalignment of this being, this sense of self. And to idealize about, oh, there's no self, the Buddha taught anatta, that's not going to do us any good. If you think there's no self, well then why do you get upset when somebody insults you? Or why do you get pleased when somebody praises you? There's definitely somebody there getting happy when you're praised and upset when you're insulted. And there's no point in pontificating about there being no self. It's not denying the Buddha's teachings. It's the Buddha spoke in particular about a sense of self. And, and again, in that Mahamangala Sutta, the second stanza, atasamapaniti cha, one's self rightly directed, or I like to think as it rightly aligned, aligned with true principles. Yeah. One's self rightly aligned, atta, one's self rightly aligned, atta samapaniti cha, one's self rightly aligned. In other words, we've got to align ourselves with that which really matters, that which is going to sustain us, nourish us, support us. And 
if we have become misaligned, then if we need help, then the humble, modest thing to do is to find the help and ask for it. And if that includes finding a psychotherapist who respects your spiritual commitment, I discourage working with a psychotherapist who doesn't respect your spiritual commitment. Find somebody who respects your spiritual commitment and then work together until this sense of I is sufficiently balanced. We can have a conscious relationship with our own beings, with our heads, with our hearts, with our guts, with our emotional household. A lot of us have very damaged relationships with our emotional household and to come into a conscious functional relationship with our emotional household then it can, you know, sometimes it, it benefits to have somebody who's developed skills in, in that regard and understanding again that that's about dealing with the conventional sense of self so that it's rightly aligned. So then we can get on with the next level of work, which maybe we can talk about the deeper level of work, of seeing through the hallucination of the sense of self. The sense of self feels so substantial, so solid. However, which of these senses of self is substantial. Is it the one that's in a good mood? When I'm in a good mood, I feel like I'm really in a good mood, really happy, really having a great time. Things are just lined up beautifully and doing well, and I feel really well. Is that the solid, real, substantial I? Well, what about the one that feels deeply threatened when you get a serious medical prognosis or you've overdosed on negative news and and feel threatened by the collective insanity of humanity, deeply threatened. I feel threatened to the point where I'm losing sleep over it, which is the solid substantial I. Well, thankfully we have the Buddhist teachings, which doesn't tell us that there's no self. It tells us that the apparent sense of self is to be investigated, to look at this feeling we have of I, and my way, is this a source of security? And this is where the spiritual teachings in particular equip us with, with competences that perhaps psychotherapy is not designed for. It doesn't mean to say there's anything wrong with psychotherapy. It's just it's not necessarily there to help us deconstruct the deluded notion of selfhood. And if what we need is psychotherapy, that's what we do, meet ourselves where we're at, not idealizing about how we should be. On this topic also, it, it's relevant that we think about the way we approach meditation in general, the way we, for instance, think about going on meditation retreat. You talk to some Buddhists and they think that that's the, the whole thing is going on retreats and everything else is just something that you put up with, and which is really unfortunate. That a lot of people find retreats very unhelpful. It doesn't mean to say that they can't find the Buddhist teachings helpful. A lot of people are quite frankly not ready to go on retreats at all. 
And so to shame people because they don't feel ready to do lots of meditation or go on retreats is a misrepresentation of the Buddha's teachings. Somebody asked me these days about going on meditation retreat. I would say, well, it might be a good idea. However, you want to prepare yourself. It's like, you know, you're going to go mountain climbing or some adventure. You prepare yourself well in advance, well in advance, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. And, and in terms of going on retreat, well, I would suggest that at the very least, you need to have a daily practice of meditation. At the very least, you need to be keeping the five moral precepts. So I would say give yourself a year. See if you can keep the moral precepts for a year. And also meditate 20 or between 20 and 40 minutes a day. That's enough. 20 minutes a day, six days a week. Give yourself one day a week off so it doesn't go stale. And 20 minutes a day meditating with an emphasis on awareness of the body not splitting off and going up to the head and, and focusing on the breath of the nostril and forgetting that you've got a body and you've got a heart that feels and a gut that senses things. In fact, include all of these into meditation. If you're doing a 20-minute meditation, my encouragement would be to start with checking out how your head feels. Is your forehead relaxed? Is your jaw comfortable? Feeling how your head feels? Uh, contented head. Contented head. Okay. And then come down to the heart. How do the shoulders feel? Are they, are they closed around the heart so you don't have to feel anything? Or are they pushed back so you don't have to feel anything? Or are they just dropped down and at ease? Shoulders at ease. Heart wide open. Take a deep breath into the upper chest. Heart wide open. Contented head. Heart wide open. And belly. I like to imagine that if there's a, a great big smile across my whole belly, a great big smile, happy belly, And then go through it again, contented head, heart wide open, belly at ease, aligned or aligning, mm, aligning, breathing in, breathing out, aligning for 20 minutes, aligning. But I want to think about stuff. <laughs> well, of course you do, because that's the addiction to distraction. That's what we learned when we were, well, if not children, as certainly as teenagers, just to think about stuff. Just to think, think, think. And I don't want to feel, I don't want to have to be in touch with my belly and my heart. There's nothing happening there anyway. Well, if there's nothing happening there, it means you're not getting all the information, because there's definitely something happening there. If your friend betrays you, you feel heartbroken. You don't feel head broken. You feel heartbroken. We definitely feel stuff in our hearts and in our belly. So we need to bring all of this into awareness. And So my encouragement would be if somebody wants to go on retreat, yes, by all means, think about going on retreat. Keep the five precepts for a year. 
20 minutes or 40 minutes if you have to, a day, six days a week in the body. And then also building up the abilities that we're taught by most people refer to as the 10 parami. I like to think of as the, the 10 vectors for transformation. And these qualities, they've got movement, they've got direction. The vectors aimed at transformation, transforming this greed, hatred and delusion into something truly beautiful and beneficial for oneself and others. So not necessarily focusing on all ten, but certainly the first three, dana, sila, nikama, generosity, integrity, and nikama, which I like to translate as building boundaries. It's like the ability to say no. Nekama parami is the ability to say no. And a lot of teachers, unfortunately, uh, forget to talk about that. And it's a, really important. If we don't know how to say no, then we don't have a strong, safe container with which the, when the in intensity builds up, as it will, and we engage the spiritual exercises, there will be a build-up of intensity. That's what transformation calls for. That's what we want to have happen. However, we've got to have a really strong container, and that's the ability to say no. And like when you're sitting meditation and you want to move, say, well, not yet. Not, I'm going to sit for two hours and break my knees. That's ridiculous. No, say, no, no, just wait a little bit longer. No, I'm not going to move. Or you want to say something to somebody who you really find offensive. I'm going to tell this person. Say, well, can I not tell them? No. Or you want to eat something more that you know you've had enough. Yeah, just, just another, it's Christmas, just another piece of marzipan soaked in chocolate, please, yes. I've already had ten pieces, I'd like another one. <laughs> no. Can we say no? If we can't say no, then we're vulnerable. You don't want to build up a lot of intensity if you're still vulnerable. And likewise with integrity, the five precepts, that builds up a sense of self-respect, of self-confidence. If we've got a habit of compromising integrity, then what we've got is self-doubt which is really painful, a lack of trust. We don't trust ourselves. So why don't I trust myself? Well, if we look closely, there might just be some activity going on that means we've been compromising integrity. Mm. The direct, predictable result of compromising integrity is a lack of self-confidence, uh, a lack of the strength of self-trust. And then generosity, dana, if we we don't have a generous heart, we don't know how to be generous in our relationships with others and, and offering our attention to others and, and offering our listening ear to others when they need it. We're offering to help. If we don't have that, well then it's very unlikely we're going to have friends. Generosity, cultivation of generosity is the the quickest way to cultivate friendship and we all need friends on this journey. So if anybody wants to go on a meditation retreat that would be my encouragement. Yes, keep the five precepts for a year. Yes, meditate 20 minutes, 40 minutes if you must, six days a week in the body and also dwell on cultivating vectors for transformation. And then 
if you do go on retreat and the intensity builds up, the process of purification can go in the direction that it's supposed to. That is, it brings up into awareness that which we've denied, the unlived life, the backlog of denied dukkha, the pain that we didn't feel ready to deal with or didn't want to deal with at the time that originally arose. Now we have the, the sense of support from being part of a community that we feel good about, a sense of self-trust and confidence, and we have the container that comes from the ability to say no to our heedless habits. And within that, there's a better chance that the ability to really meet ourselves there, to really say, this is what's happening. This is anger. Oh, right. Before I was just up my head thinking about anger. Now you're in your heart and you're barely feeling anger. And in feeling it, we see that we're responsible for our relationship to it. We're doing the suffering. We're the agents of the suffering. Or the sadness that was making us feel depressed before because it was pushed down to the belly and we didn't know we felt chronically sad. Now you can feel sad, fully feel sad, fully feel offended without becoming lost in it because we prepared ourselves for it. And if we fully feel it, well then there's an integration of that energy, that heart energy that was being experienced as sadness or as anger or as disappointment, whatever it was, that dukkha that we previously denied. There's the possibility that, that the resistance falls away, what various teachers talk about letting go. What we're letting go of is the resistance. We're not letting go of the energy. You don't want to let go of the energy. It's just the heart energy letting go of the resistance, then there's a possibility that that energy will be integrated back into the heart and will build up our strength and will be the nourishment that sustains us on this journey. And there's one more point, going back to that question, which I think warrants attention, and that is where it says that where personal survival is threatened, well, I don't know when this person asks the question, what they're really referring to. If they're referring to the deluded personality, feeling threatened well, uh, the bad news is <laughs> that your deluded personality is definitely threatened if you take this training seriously. Uh, once again, that doesn't mean to say that we're demonizing the sense of self or making a problem out of the ego, which unfortunately so many meditators do. What we're talking doing is transforming our relationship to that feeling, that sense of I and my way. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Can I, uh...